Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And one of our absolute favorite podcasts was What Happened to Cleopatra's Children. We chose it because we really like Cleopatra. And Juba too. And Juba too, because he's our, our favorite historical personage. Um, but we also chose it because we wanted to learn more about Cleopatra's personal life and that of her children. But consequently, we learned a little bit about her struggle against Rome, too. And she is not the only woman who stood up to Rome. Another woman who has is our subject for today's podcast. And I'll let Aurelian give her introduction with this quote. How, O Zenobia, hast thou dared to insult Roman emperors? And how indeed. So a little bit about who she was. She was a third century queen of Palmyra, which today is Syria. And she was a warrior queen. She conquered again and again until she came up against Aurelian. She also styled herself like Cleopatra, who she viewed somewhat as a role model and did a lot of building her own legend in her own time. There are all these stories about her, you know, about her being this gorgeous woman with her dark brown skin and her pearly white teeth, but she was someone who could drink with the boys and also used sex as a weapon within the bounds of her marriage. So, of course, this kind of woman gets written about. Boccaccio and Chaucer write about her. Chaucer mentions her in The Monk's Tale. So a little bit about who she is. Uh, Zenobia has two names. In Latin, it's Septimia Zenobia, and in Aramaic, it's Batsabai. She was Arab, but she may also have been Aramean. And some have said she was Jewish because she treated the Jews of Alexandria well. But other historians have made a point, like Antonia Fraser, that that says a lot about Jews in history and their persecution. If you assume yeah. just because someone was nice you to a group to be of people, yeah. they must have been part of the group. <laughs> so... Zenobia's mother may have been Egyptian. Her father was definitely a wealthy, educated Arab merchant aristocrat. And we've mentioned Cleopatra a few times now. Zenobia wanted to be like Cleopatra. She's her role model. She says she's descended from her by Juba too, of course. Um, she probably isn't, but she still just seizes on this potential ancestor to align herself with and yeah. to kind of put herself in that mold. Well, and just as Cleopatra tries to align herself with Isis, the goddess Isis, uh, Zenobia has this more modern version. So we should talk a little bit more about Palmyra and what this kingdom is that she has. It's also known by its more ancient name, Todmor, the city. And then the 3rd century BC is when it became important, and that's because of the city's location in relation to trade. It's between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates on an oasis. So it was linked by caravan routes to Phoenicia, Emesa, and Damascus. So it's really linking Mesopotamia to the east here. And as far as trade goes, it's a good place to be. Camels, another <laughs> favorite topic of ours, Podcast theme. Um, are bringing in silk and jade from China. Spices and ebony are coming in from India. And these wealthy merchant aristocrats who live there are oftentimes patrons of the art as well. In AD 114, Palmyra is technically part of the Roman Empire, but Hadrian gave them a lot of freedom. He even let them levy their own municipal taxes, which was a big deal. And Palmyra is valuable to the Roman Empire because it connects them to the east, and also because of their military prowess. The Palmyrian archers were considered pretty amazing, and the Romans were hoping to use them against the Parthians. 
So Palmyra eventually becomes a colony. So they they get an even better deal than they have. And they gain more freedom from Rome. And Rome puts Zenobia's husband, Arnat or Odonathus, maybe, in charge. Um, and they're too busy dealing with the Goths. The Roman emperors are too busy. Right. So they want someone else who's watching over the eastern Who provinces the terrain. for them while they're fighting battles on their other borders. And Odonathus does the empire a service. The emperor Valerian has been defeated, captured, and killed in a gory way by King Sapor of Persia. Some say he was forced to swallow molten gold. And it looks like Persia is going to take over these eastern provinces, but Odonathus manages to repel them. However, he is assassinated in 266 or 267, as is his heir from his first marriage. So who killed them? That's our big question here. This guy's at the height of his glory, and he's assassinated. There's good reason to believe it could have been Zenobia, because next in line for the throne is her kid, Babalathus Athenodorus. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, which is entirely likely. And then she would be regent for him. Or it could also have been the Romans, who may not have been happy with this self-styled king taking over large parts of their empire. Well, and who's getting quite proud of himself, too. So Zenobia becomes regent and immediately attacks Egypt. Rome is busy again fighting the Goths. And in 269, she's conquered most of Egypt and annexed most of Syria. And by 270, she's into Asia Minor. So Palmyra now goes from Egypt to the Bosphorus, including Syria, Mesopotamia, Palestine, northern Arabia, Egypt, and a big part of Asia Minor. So she's controlling this huge amount of territory and all of the trade routes that go through it, which is the really crucial thing here. Rome totally depends on Egypt for corn. So if you have Zenobia shutting you out of Egypt, you're you're in a mess of trouble. So this is bad news for Rome. But again, they're dealing with other things on other fronts. They don't have the time or the energy to devote to Zenobia until she declares that she is independent from Rome. She's no longer a part of their empire. And in 271, she has money made with her and her son's image, which is basically just a declaration of war. It reminds me again of Cleopatra, too. Oh, exactly. So the Palmarines go to the oracles to find out about the future of their empire And it does not go well, to say the very least. The oracle at Apollo Sarpedonius tells them their inquiry is basically an insult, and the oracle at Venus Aphositis won't even take their offerings. Yeah, didn't you say it it floats there? Yeah, this is a bad, bad omen for the Palmarines. It reminded us of the the specters when Darnley rides into town. Yeah, whenever ghostly specters happen, it's just bad news. (laughs) But Rome has a new emperor in 270, Aurelian, and he is tired of Zenobia's shenanigans and marches to Asia Minor. So the Palmarines face Aurelian outside of Antioch. And the Palmarines had this awesome line of archers with the cavalry behind it and then the infantry behind that. But the cavalry had a bad habit of getting overzealous and just losing touch with what else was going on, according to Antonia Fraser's book, Warrior Queen. Yes, and so they get tricky, and they pretend to retreat, hoping that the cavalry will follow them, which they do. And they then have the cavalry and the riders running around in the desert until they get tired, at which point they surround them and kill them all. So Zenobia is obviously in trouble at this point. She heads to Amisa. She has Aurelian in pursuit of her. And each side has about 70,000 men, which is a truly large number. 
And they catch up with her, and the Romans win. They were simply the better army. There are dead men and horses, you know, littering the countryside. And Zenobia flees again. She goes back to Palmyra, which is about a 100 miles from where they are. She's probably hoping the distance and the terrain and the heat are going to keep Aurelian from getting to her. But he makes it, and then she's stuck. She's in this isolated area. She's got nowhere else to go, and he sets up a blockade. And famine sets in pretty soon. And the two write each other, Zenobia and Aurelian, and uh, he tells her to surrender and offers her pretty good terms. But she refuses absolutely and defiantly. She will not surrender to the emperor. And she leaves the city, the snottier interpretation of it is that she was just trying to escape and she was leaving her people to their fate. But some people say she was going to try to get help from Persia against Aurelian. Either way, she's caught at the Euphrates and she's brought to Emesa. Palmyra falls. And now she has to deal with Aurelian. So Aurelian is not happy that all of this trouble happened over a woman. And he gives all these speeches basically trying to justify fighting a woman, essentially, you know, saying, well, she's a woman, but she really has a lot of the qualities of a man, just trying to make, make himself, himself look better, look a little better. But then she goes back with the uh, classic trick of saying, well, I'm just a weak woman, and it was men who tricked me, and, you know, this was none of my own doing. I didn't even write that defiant letter. It was the scholar instead. The poor scholar is executed. And she plays her cards well. She is taken as a captive to Rome in this giant parade that Aurelian sets up. In addition to having Zenobia wearing tons of jewels, pounds of them, and gold shackles, the triumph also features elephants and giraffes and gladiators and ambassadors, captives wearing placards. So I really liked that detail. They've got people, all sorts of captives that Aurelian's gotten, even though, you know, Zenobia is captive number one, yeah, but they the all star. have signs around their necks saying like Amazon or something, except for Zenobia, who doesn't need them with the pounds of jewels. So it's like an exotic natural history triumph. I almost. really wish I'd been there. But she goes off to live the rest of her life rather quietly. She married a Roman senator and went to live in a villa in the countryside. And that's pretty much the end of what you hear about Zenobia. So this slow denouement of her life contrasts really interestingly to that of Cleopatra, who knows how to go out with a bang or a <laughs> bite, ask, rather. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it so interesting that somebody who has modeled her life um, so closely on that of Cleopatra is willing to to give it up in the end and admit her defeat, I guess. Another interesting thing about Zenobia versus other warrior queens throughout history, like Boudicca, and again, I'm going to Antonia Frazier's book, Warrior Queens, is that her military pursuits weren't about righting wrongs or any sort of... They weren't moral. No, they were completely about ambition, pure burning ambition. And, you know, then she ends up in her little villa in the countryside, I guess, accomplishing what she could. Well, and, and that fits into this legend building that we were talking about earlier that surrounds her, this ambition to um, not only conquer territories, but build herself up into this uh, consequently mythical personage. Uh, she's done such a good job at her own legend building that she seems kind of false almost. She seems like the perfect character for um, like a made-for-TV movie or something. I would absolutely go see that. But that brings us to listener mail. 
And today, listener mail is a little bit different. We're not going to give you anyone's names, but we had a listener write to us, and he said, please, please, in caps, no more women's history. And we're sorry to say that that's not going to happen. Not at all. (laughs) I think when a lot of people think of women's history, they think of a Jane Austen novel come to life. People sitting in sitting rooms and talking about manners and things. And we don't want to discount those stories because those stories are important. And we we, will continue. We would love to talk about someone like Jane Austen. We do. We would love (laughs) Jane Austen. But there are also other stories that don't get covered as often and things that you do miss in history, like Zenobia, who I certainly never encountered before today, someone who was working very much in a male sphere. So since we're not willing to discount 51% of history, um, you should send us your favorite women's history topics or any history because we're always open to it all to historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we're at Missed in History. And if you would like to learn more about women in history, you should check out our website at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 